game of firsts. You make your debut, way to go. Score your first goal, there'll be more where that came from. Get called up to the national team, well, you're on your way now. But not all firsts are happy occasions. Just ask Tommy Ball, the man who in 1923 became the first professional footballer to be murdered in the UK. This is his story. The time is approaching midnight and a full moon is visible from the window. It's a perfect night for tales of woe and true crime. This is the dead ball situation. And I'm your host, Stevie Green. Each week, this podcast will cover cases of murder and general bad behaviour in the world of football. And to kick off the series, we'll be telling the tale of Tommy Ball, murdered by his landlord over wandering chickens in 1923. This week, heavy industry, forcibly retired police, and wandering livestock combined to spell a grisly end to a talented young footballer who was heading into his prime. This is the dead ball situation. Every generation will frequently say that football has changed, that it was better in their day. When players used to mingle with fans in pubs and travel to matches on buses, when they had normal jobs and trades away from the noise and the glory of the stadium. But in the 1920s, football, much like life, really was different. It was a time when professionalism was still a dirty word, and the game was still recovering from having half its talent wiped out due to the Great War. The World Cup hadn't been born yet, and you can forget about players being celebrities. That was safe for royalty. One of the powerhouses of the 1920s was Aston Villa. Nestled in the Midlands in the heart of the Industrial Revolution, the club was a hotbed of success, having won six league titles and six FA Cups since their formation in 1874. They'd only finished outside the top five once in the old First Division since 1888, and all things considered... They needed a squad that weren't afraid to get their hands dirty if they were to have any hope of guaranteeing their continued success. At the start of the 20s, Frank Barson stood at the heart of Villa's defence, a great bear of a man with a short fuse to match. He frequently had to be smuggled out of opposition grounds after his increasingly explosive outbursts on the pitch put him and his teammates in danger. Barson had been brought to Villa by George Ramsey, who was trying to rebuild the club after the war and the defender had taken up a key role in the club's redevelopment. He made an immediate impact, and even won a call-up to the national team during his first season. But he struggled to see eye-to-eye with those in charge of the Midlands side. He maintained a business in Sheffield, and refused to move to Birmingham. And when he eventually did, he couldn't settle. His frequent run-ins with authority eventually came to a head in 1922, when he allowed a friend to hover in the dressing room after a game against Liverpool. This earned him a seven-day ban from the club, and his response was to say fuck you and hand in a transfer request. He was going back north. He didn't need this. Luckily for Villa, they had a pretender to the throne lined up ready to take the mantle of king. Tommy Ball, the 23-year-old miner's son, had been making a name for himself as an able deputy for Barson, and now he had his chance to shine. Ball had arrived a year after Barson and didn't suffer with the same struggle to fit in or toe the party line. Ball had been a talented player as a child, and developed his skills playing in several local colliery sides, and that's where he caught the eye of Newcastle United. The Magpies sprung for Bolt in a move to beat local rivals Sunderland and Middlesbrough to the punch, but he failed to make a single appearance for the first team at St James's Park before Villa came calling. 
He had to bide his time at Villa, but he was prepared to wait. 1922 was a good year for Ball. When Barson left for Manchester United, he was promoted to first-choice centre-half. His performances were so good that even he was being tipped as a future England international as well. His career was beginning to take off, and in May, he married his sweetheart, Beatrice Richards, the daughter of a local butcher and pie-maker. He nicknamed her Bella. Things were looking up. In October, they moved into their own place, a little love nest on Brick Kiln Lane in Perry Bar, just minutes away from Villa Park. They still didn't have enough to buy a place outright, so they rented. They were deliriously happy. But little did they know that the house they'd just moved into would signal the beginning of the end of the happiness they were enjoying, thanks to their landlord, George Stagg. Stagg was 45 years old, a former soldier who'd served in Sudan and Egypt during his younger days. Upon his return, he took up work with the police and patrolled Birmingham's seedy underworld. Those who are familiar with the popular TV show Peaky Blinders will know how much of a Wild West Birmingham could be back then. But when the call came to join the war effort in 1914, he enlisted again. This time, though, his stint in the army was cut short after being wounded and gassed in the trenches of France. His injuries left him handicapped, and he was rejected from returning to active service with the military. To make matters worse, the police said that he couldn't come back to work there either. He grew bitter. With nothing to do, he struggled to maintain a sense of purpose. But thanks to his wife, he was persuaded to buy two cottages on Brick Kiln Lane. They moved into one, and they would rent the other out as a way to supplement his pension. But what happens to an authoritarian when their authority is taken away? They act out. They get difficult. Seeing the criminal element of the city rising up and causing trouble put him in a bad mood and left him feeling helpless. He had little time for a footballer and his nonsense, causing trouble at home, something Tommy and his wife would soon find out. When the pair moved in, the tensions began almost immediately. Tommy brought animals with him, chickens mostly, and a dog. Both would make their way into Stag's garden on a regular basis, crossing over the small fence that separated the properties. The frequency of this came to annoy Stag. He couldn't believe that a man couldn't be in control of his animals. And just a few months into their tenancy, after he'd even attempted to poison Tommy's chickens, he served the couple with an eviction notice. Three months passed, but nothing was done. Ball remained at the house as his football career went from strength to strength. That talk of a call-up to the England squad was getting louder as he became more important to the Villa back line. On November 10th, Villa furthered their title credentials with a 1-0 win over Notts County at the county ground. A goal from inside right Billy Curtin enough to separate the teams and keep their title hopes on track. The club moved up into third, with the results setting them up for an upcoming doubleheader against Liverpool. November 11th is a significant date in England. On that date, just five years earlier, the guns of the First World War fell silent and the broken men lucky enough to survive the muddy hell in France made it back home to try and pick up the pieces. Services were held up and down the country, with the horrors the men witnessed still fresh in their minds. It was a day of remembrance, but in the evening, people flocked to where everybody goes after a tough day, the pub. Tommy and Beatrice Ball were no different. They headed to their local in Perry Bar, the church tavern, where they sank three and a half pints of ale until closing time at 9.30. They made their way back home, and Tommy, not ready to go to bed yet, decided to take his dog for a late-night walk and shake off the ale that had been warming his blood. The dog was outside in the back garden. 
and Stag, who'd perhaps been disturbed by the couple's return home, had had enough. He picked up his trusty single-barrel 12-gauge Webley and Scott sporting gun and unlocked the door. He could hear the dog in his garden and called out to Ball to get his damn hound out of there before he'd teach him a lesson. Ball, in no mood for Stag's temper, shouted back and the men became embroiled in a slanging match. Stag was done. He had to show the younger man who was boss around here. So he loaded the barrel, aimed into the fog and pulled the trigger. Bella heard the argument, first ignored it, but she couldn't ignore the gunshot. She also couldn't ignore Tommy's voice calling out to her. Bella, he shot me, her husband gasped. She ran downstairs and found Tommy staggering towards her with a hole the size of half a crown embedded in his chest. As she reached out for him, Stag fired another shot and screamed, You'd better get in. Can't you see Tommy has been shot? Bella ran out into the street, fearing for her own life, and the screams attract the attention of their neighbours. Mrs. Stagg, oblivious to what had happened, shouted out of her own window for everyone to keep the noise down. Tommy Ball was now dead, sprawled out on the couch in his living room. And George Stagg, with the rifle still in his hand, stood in the front garden and waited for the police. When the cops arrived, Stagg told them that it was quite the accident, that he grabbed his weapon because he thought he could hear Ball climb the fence in a fit of drunken rage and he'd only fired the gun in self-defence, to threaten the younger man. He tried to claim that the gun had misfired the second time as the two grappled for control of the weapon. However, Stagg's story didn't add up. Two witnesses, the church tavern's landlord and a bus conductor, both confirmed that Ball hadn't been drunk at all, and Stagg's claim that Ball had tried to climb the garden gate was met with a dubious side-eye, as he could have more easily stepped over the knee-high wall instead. And just why would Stag need a cocked shotgun to push a man off a gate, especially one he'd reloaded? George Stag was arrested and charged with willful murder and malicious afterthought, on Armistice Day no less. Tommy Ball's funeral was held eight days later on November the 19th and began with a cortege that set off from Bella's father's butcher shop on Aston High Street. He had a lot of followers. Seven coaches and several cars comprised of friends, family and his Aston Villa teammates. The convoy made its way through the crowds to St John's Church in Perry Bar, near where they lived on Brickkiln Lane. He was carried in by his teammates, accompanied by a host of floral tributes donated by local clubs. His headstone was decorated with a series of ornate footballs and an inscription reading, To T.E. Ball, a token of esteem from his fellow players of Aston Villa FC. A collection among the crowd most of whom were in the crowd for the funeral procession at Villa's home match on the Saturday before the funeral, raised over £100 for Bella. When Stagg's trial began, he kept to his insistence of the player's death being accidental. It was quite an accident, he said. My dog was barking as Ball was going past his garden gate, and he was shouting at the dog to stop it. I jumped out of the chair in which I had been dozing. I told my dog to go in. And Ball, who was under the influence of drink, shouted to me, Go in and go to bed, or I'll bash your brains out. I said, Now Tom, go in and go to bed. There's good chap. He even claimed that Ball had threatened to assault his wife. The court transcript has him saying, Mrs Stagg was up at the window, having gone to bed, and shouted from the window, Go in and don't make a noise to wake the children. Ball shouted to Mrs Stagg, I will bash your brains out. 
and went to climb over the garden gate. The gate was latched and bolted. I had the gun in my hand, and when I went to the gate to see what was the matter, because the dog was barking, I told him to get off the gate and go to bed and use the gun to frighten him. He went away and came back again and tried to get over the gate again. I pushed him back with the muzzle of the gun, and he caught hold of the gun, and we tried to wrench it from me. As I wrenched the gun away, I stepped back and the gun went off. A sudden jerk, and off it went. But the jury weren't buying it, and neither was the judge. They reconstructed Stagg's gate in the courtroom to test his theory. The judge took Stagg's gun, cocked it, and dropped it against the bench. But the mechanism didn't click. He did it again. Still nothing. But when Stagg did it, the gun clicked. Stagg was growing desperate. He said that Ball was a heavy drinker who would knock his wife about when the mood took him. But both Bella and Villa's trainer, Alfred Miles, denied his claims under oath. Talk turned to jealousy. At Villa, Ball had been making £8 a week plus a regular £2 win in bonuses. Stagg was making a pittance on his police pension, supplemented by a few shillings more because of his war wounds. Stagg, unremarkable in appearance, was also suspected of being jealous of Ball's movie star good looks, which were aided by his jet black slick back hair and Italian lineage. The defence produced a doctor who'd studied Ball's injuries and claimed that the gun could not have been at Stagg's shoulder when it was fired, and that Ball's movements after the fatal shot were more consistent with his having staggered back after letting go of a gun than if he had not been holding the gun when he was shot. They also produced several witnesses who backed up Stagg's chronology of the evening, instead of that of Bella's. She said there was a shot, then a pause while she left the house, then a scream when she saw her husband, and then another shot. Others heard shot, pause, shot, scream. But when the jury retired to deliberate, they took just an hour and 40 minutes to deliver a verdict. They found him guilty. But the jury felt a sympathy for Stagg and requested clemency in sentencing. Stagg's counsel requested leave to appeal, but the judge dismissed the appeal outright and sentenced Stagg to death. However, and this is fortunate for Stagg, Arthur Henderson had recently been installed as Home Secretary and was no supporter of the death penalty. That, coupled with increasing public pressure, saved George Stagg's life, and he had his death warrant commuted to two life sentences. Stagg spent just three years behind bars, though, before he was declared insane and moved to Broadmoor. He'd see out the rest of his days in a variety of mental institutions before dying at the age of 87 in 1966 at Birmingham's Highcroft Mental Hospital, just down the road from Villa Park. Ball's place in the team was taken up by Vic Milne, who at 26 was already a qualified doctor. Milne remained at Villa Park for the rest of his playing career, making 157 appearances before becoming the club doctor and a local GP. Ball's legacy at Villa Park faded. His grave has gone through numerous restorations, thanks mostly to local historians, and in 1996, a book was written about him by the journalist Paul Lester. But for the most part, he's remained a mysterious part of the club's folklore. And it's only now that fans are beginning to pay more attention to his short career and fascinating story. But if one thing is for sure, it's that Villa's predilection for iconic centre-backs has been running there for nearly a century.
Well, what a story. It's certainly one of the oddest tales in football I've ever come across. And you almost certainly couldn't imagine any footballers getting shot over a dispute about a dog these days. I was surprised that Villa haven't featured him more prominently in their history, given the illustrious past they've had. But I guess it's pretty hard to turn a murder into a positive spin. I tried to find out what happened to Bella after this all happened, but I couldn't find anything. And it's hard not to feel a certain sympathy for George Stagg. He'd served his country twice, and even played his part in upholding the law, but he'd been chewed up and spat out. It's not difficult to see why he turned bitter in his later years. That's not me excusing what he did, of course. He deserved to be punished for that. But it can't have been a nice end to what, up to that point, had been a pretty distinguished life. It'd be interesting to have a look at his police records. I couldn't find them, although I'm sure they're out there. But he was on the force at a time when policing was probably a little bit more heavy-handed than it was today. So it'd be interesting to see if he had previous. I'd wanted to get my hands on a copy of Paul Lester's book, The Murder of Tommy Ball, an Aston Villa tragedy. But it's only available online for 32.89, and I don't really have that kind of money floating around. Also, at 44 pages, it's little more than a pamphlet. That's not to say it's not good, but I just couldn't afford to put my hand in my pocket this time. As for resources, every article I used, I'm going to put the link to on the Facebook page when the podcast goes up. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the deadball situation. There's also a really good short documentary made just while I was planning this one by my friends at the Villa View. You should give that a watch too. It's only about 10 minutes long, but it's really good. I also want to give a big shout out to my good friend, Rennie Jackson. Rennie and I go back a long way and we've collaborated musically together on several occasions, but he really came through for me this time and provided all the music you heard in the podcast today. On the Facebook page, I'm going to put a link to his SoundCloud and his Bandcamp so you can give him some love and support because he really deserves it. He's a talented guy and a really good dude at that. I also want to say thank you to Francis Mitchell who provided the logo for the podcast. I'm useless with things like design and Photoshop, and she really came through and pulled out something great. So I really hope you like that too. I'll also be putting a link to her work, which is on Instagram mostly, on the Facebook page. And she deserves some support because she's just starting out and she's got a real talent for this sort of thing. Well, that's the episode. I'm really thankful that you're able to join me for this one. It's something I've been thinking about doing for a long time. And I really hope that with your support, I can keep going from strength to strength. If you need to get in touch with me or the show for any reason whatsoever, whether you've got questions or comments, I'm a pretty easy guy to find. As I said earlier, you can find the Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash deadball situation. I'm also on Twitter at steveuin 11 That's 11 as a XI. So that's the show. I'm really thankful that you're able to join me for the first episode. It's been a long time coming and it's something that I've wanted to do for a while. You can join me next week for episode two, which is going to cover the mysterious death of former Nigerian international striker Rashidi Yakini. So until then, hope you don't have nightmares. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.